Emmy Award-winning producer, actor, and comedian Larry Wilmore is back on the air, hosting a podcast where he weighs in on the issues of the week and interviews guests in the world of politics, entertainment, culture, sports, and beyond. Check out Larry Wilmore Black on the Air on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership, visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast, a good friend of mine, an amazing mother, and just an all-around great journalist, talk show host, and author, and all of those other good things, Miss Tamron Hall. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Better that I'm talking to you, and thank know, you for those I, kind words. No, you are, you are so special. You are an icon, and so I, <laughs> it's an honor to have you on. You know, on my show, I usually start by having our guests walk us through the arc of their career. And in terms of broadcast journalism, you've done a little bit of everything. So walk us through the arc of your career from your first assignment reporting in Texas to national network news with MSNBC to a talk show. And what did you take from each stop in your career that got you to the point where you are now, which is one of the hottest syndicated talk shows in the country? Well, that is a big question. And thank you for the compliment about the show. Listen, I actually, the arc started well before my first official news job, which was in Bryan College Station at Texas A&M. It started as a kid in Luling, Texas, where I preferred the company of a woman um, we called Mama Susie. She was a midwife. And a cousin who at the time was probably 80, um, and there I was about five or six, we called her Cutting Lovey because I'm that Southern. And we don't say cousin, we say Cutting. And my <laughs> and Lovey would sit with me uh, and just tell me all about herself. She had uh, outlived her children and her husband and was one of the oldest on our street. And I just loved being around her. I loved hearing the stories about her life. And the same with Susie, I'd go down and chat with her. She was also a single woman, had outlived her husband. And I was this kid who just enjoyed hearing about their journey. I didn't appreciate clearly all of the challenges that these Black women from the South had faced and now had been widowed and what they experienced. But I knew the richness of what they were telling me meant something. So I say that's the beginning because that was the first really talk show that Mm -hmm. I had. You know, they were my first guests. And after, you know, a childhood of really being curious and my parents making sure that that was fed through reading and and through exposure to things like that, I went on to Temple University 
where uh, I hadn't even heard of Temple University. My mother was upset with me because I wanted to go to Syracuse, but we didn't have the money and I didn't get the scholarship money. And I said at the time, then fine, I won't go to college. And my mom- well, I, I, That didn't walking. go over well. Trust me. That, it did that, not. That, <laughs> well, interesting. My parents had two different reactions. My dad was in the military for 30 years. My dad said, um, no, we're going to figure this out. I don't know who you think you are. Da, 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 da. My mother, who was a huge college basketball uh, fan, was watching the final four and turned to me and said, well, if you want to do this, why don't you just go find one of them and marry them? And I said, fine, I will. I will. <laughs> so I was like, and, and there is the truth of how I ended up at Temple. I applied. I was going to prove her. Oh, you gonna, I'm going to call your buff because we were at that age. I was at that age, rather, where my mom was always my best friend. Yeah. And now she'd become mom. And you understand that as a parent as well, that transition that we can go through. But anyway, applied to Temple University and, and fell in love with Philadelphia. And then on a, on a lark, met uh, Bert Watson, who was Joe Frazier's manager at the time. Okay. And they helped me get my first TV gig. And it kind of started from there. I did a community affairs show. I covered some sports and I was really bad at it, but they can't fire Joe Frazier's, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to go over well. And so uh, I was bad at the camera work. I, I, they did all these little meet, you know, behind the scenes thing. Like I did the Chirons for football and I'm like, I can't count to five. And you want me to do downs and yards? <laughs> kept getting it wrong. And so I kept failing up. <laughs> and so eventually <laughs> they said, well, you can do the sideline reporting. Fine. And even though I wasn't particularly interested in covering sports, it wasn't my forte. I did start to interview fans about how they felt being at the game and their reaction to the game and, you know, where are they from and how did you end up at Penn or LaSalle or Drexel? Oh, wow. And I started to learn much more through covering volleyball. Uh, there were a couple of players who were, uh, whose parents were Polish immigrants. So I started learning names and culture that way through sports. And then I ultimately, out of college, landed that job at Bryan College Station, where Texas A&M is located, worked there less than a year, ended up um, at um, KTVT Channel 11 in Dallas. And then my friend said, take this job in Chicago. Chicago is where Black news anchors become legends. And I'm like, well, I won't become a legend, but I'll be in Chicago. Where's my ticket? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, my friend Steve Pickett, who's a journalist to this day, he said, go. Chicago's market supports black anchors and reporters. And that is where you will find your way. And I took the job and I worked there for 10 years. And then I ended up in New York. You know, Chicago does make a lot of people shout out to Don Lemon. Um, there are a lot Don of people Lemon. who've gone through uh, Chicago and there are a lot of people who've gone through Temple in Philly. Shout out yeah. to my girl, Don Staley. Who just yes. got that big that big check? Twenty two million. Listen, <laughs> yes. Don and I are friends. Hey, Don. Hey. <laughs> I know. I texted her the other day, talking about can I hold something? She ain't respond yet. I need to. I need to get on that. She got to take me to happened. eat something. That's I know. So talk to talk to me about this because everybody can't do it. But what was that transition like going from hardcore news to a talk show? And why did you move away from cable news? Right at a time when so many Americans were tuning into cable news, I think I have like a thought process about it because you've become an outlet for so many who are just getting beat up by cable news day in and day out. But how was that transition? It was a welcome transition for me uh, out of cable news mm-hmm. um, because I got to a point where it was dizzying, you know, mm-hmm. for me. 
it was, you know, I, I used to tell my producers, we were getting guests on that their whole purpose, they were throwing uh, emotional grenades, things you didn't have time to respond to. You know, they had their five things or maybe two that they were going to keep lobbing with no consequence. Orly Tate comes to mind. David Schuster and I anchored her show together uh, for a while. And Orly Tate was what some call the originator of the birther movement. You might remember mm-hmm. this woman. Yeah. Um, and she came on and her whole tactic, Bakari, was just to overtalk you and keep talking, overtalk you and keep talking. And it's live and you don't really have, I mean, you know, it's not true, right? You know it, but it didn't matter. And I feel that that was the beginning of, it didn't matter back when Mike Wallace and those guys were doing it. And, you know, you could stop. Well, here's my piece of paper that proved you weren't true. <laughs> da, da, da. And they'd pause and be embarrassed. And the camera would push in on the person who was lying. And that was that. And then there became this evolution of I'm on live, nothing they can do about it. And they would just keep on and come on and keep on. And I started to feel more and more uncomfortable, not with the work and the intention, because people like yourself, and as you mentioned, Don and Angela Rye, the list goes on and on. Joy and Reed, Tiffany Cross. And I'm not just naming black people. I'm naming people who are my friends that I respect. So, you know, <laughs> Jonathan K. Park, like, I don't know anybody because I do. I'm naming the people that are my friends that I respect as well. And I can say, I know behind the scenes, we're having these concerning questions yeah. about the direction. With that said, early on, you know, MSNBC was pushed to recognize its large African-American yes. viewership. And and early on, that was not the case. Hence the reason Don Lemon was only black anchor in prime time. There were two. There was Don Lemon on cable, but on TV period, it was just Don and Lester Holt. That was it. Lester Holt. And Don, until there was Joy Reid hosting a prime time cable news show, despite the high viewership of not just black, black, brown as well. So Latino and Asian viewers of our content, but not seeing that reflected. So I have a lot, I have a complex relationship with cable news. What impact is social media? What, what impact has social media had on the news, not just cable news, but the work that you do too now? Cause you know, when you started, you know, going viral was probably being in Ebony magazine or jet magazine, but now going okay, viral. Well, it's not, not, I didn't start in 1901. What are you talking about? <laughs> I, should, going viral, back with I mean, I'm just, I know. <laughs> No, we. I had YouTube, Bakari. There was. You had, there was I mean, MySpace. MySpace, my LimeWire. I, I mean, I don't. <laughs> no, I started in 2008. Thank you. Not 1904. I hear you. I hear. You. But it was different. Was, and Facebook, that maybe. That was the beginning of Twitter. That was the yeah. beginning of Twitter. But how has I Twitter started. and IG? How, how has that affected or changed the way you do your I, work? Listen, I don't feel it's changed me, but I get how it can change people. Meaning. Gotcha you start to see people do things for the clicks, right? A case I'll give you, Scott Bayo came on my show once and it, every, it was, it was just one of the most shocking moments here. I, I used to have Chachi on my wall, yeah. you know, and then suddenly Chachi is literally lunging toward me and I'm going, is this real? And I tell that story because I got off and it was trending. Everyone, yeah. my phone was blowing up. But for me, Bakari, I was embarrassed. I remember leaving with a headache. The rims of my ear, when I get upset, get really warm because I thought, this is not what I want to do. I don't want to be on air taking down Chachi, right? First of all, I don't know how he's even here. 
and why. <laughs> why? And, and, and I don't want to go viral for, you know, getting into it with him. And that's not, you know, I'm sure, you know, listen, he's got his views and, and he turns out to be a, a really conservative uh, person. But the reason why we um, did not see eye to eye in that interview was because of misogynist. Misogynistic uh, words, disinformation. You know, mis- yeah, misogynistic disinformation and also brutal brutal and cruel words that he at the time said he wrote while in church about Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama. And so that struck me, whatever, I don't care what he believes politically, but you're telling me I just left church and I was writing this thing and it happened to be about how Hillary, it just struck me as odd and, and um, concerning more than odd. It was deeply concerning as a woman. And I brought it up. My point of that story is it went viral, but it didn't feel good to me to go viral that way. And it didn't rest well with my spirit that this is what we do now. We get on and take down Chachi and we become, you know, viral sensation. I did not like that. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Well, let's talk about the reason why you're here today, which is your new book Mm -hmm. as The Wicked Watch. What's it about and why a mystery series? Well, the book is about what we actually, what you're talking about, cable news. It ties in very much so. Um, There's a character, Jordan Manning, inspired in some parts by my life as a cable news host, uh, as a reporter in the streets in Chicago, um, as an anchor. Uh, I covered two cases, Bakari, in 1997. One was the death of a girl in Texas. The other was um, the death of a young girl, same age, both 11, in Chicago. And I was struck by how different the cases were treated in the media, which we are both a part of. I was also struck by how, as a reporter, we feel compelled to not show emotion or be present. And there I am standing in a field where a baby's body has been found, and I'm supposed to just walk off and be ready to do the next newscast on bad weather. And so this always just lingered in my heart. And I 
started to, over the pandemic, write this series. I love Nancy Drew series. I grew up with the Nancy Drew box set under my bed. So I knew I wanted it to be a series. Uh, But I also wanted to reconcile feelings that I had at the time that I wasn't able to speak up about meaning and and why, because I thought, okay, I'd be fired. I wouldn't be in the business. I wouldn't be on with you right now. And so it allowed me to reconcile wrongs that I thought happened in those cases, but also shed some light on what is it like to be a black woman reporting in this business and being a one of one. And I took not just from my experience, but as I said, many of the people that we share in common, but also people that inspired me. Iola Johnson was the first black woman to anchor the news in Dallas Fort Worth. I got a chance to meet her much later in my life, but she's the reason I'm in this business. And not, had she not been that one, I wouldn't be the one who went yep. on to do what I did. So it's inspired by that. It's a thriller. People wanted me to write a memoir and that might come one day. I was like, um, that's what I'm waiting on. I got a, I got a memoir type question that I'm going to end this interview with down the road. But right. well, why, why Chicago? I mean, I know your relationship with Chicago yeah. is amazing, but talk about Chicago and its relation, your relationship with it and why you settled yeah. on Chicago as the backdrop of this book and not maybe the South right. or New York. Well, I first, I think I, as they say, cut my teeth in Chicago, right? Yeah. I learned neighborhoods in Chicago. I learned ethnic identity in Chicago. I grew up in, you know, Texas. And, and I don't mean to say this in a, in a flippant way, but there was a time where people were literally like, you're black, white, or Mexican. And you'd say, no, I'm not. I am Colombian. No, you're Mexican. No, I'm not. I'm Puerto Rican. No, you're Mexican. I'm black. Are you Jamaican? No, you're black. You know, cultural ethnic identity was very rare, even with white. It was like, oh, you're white. No, I'm Polish. No, you're white. So I grew up in this environment where it was black, white, Mexican. And then I went to Chicago and I learned, you know, Ukraine village or, you know, the Polish neighborhood and immigrant stories that I hadn't been exposed to. And that also was deeply reminded then that black is not a monolith, that my black journey in Luling, Texas was different from my black journey in Dallas, Texas. And, you know, I was there right after the move uh, bombing happened and how Ramona Africa, you know, surviving that changed my life. And it was a black mayor who set off that tragedy that's still little known around the world. So these things changed my life. And for me, Going to Chicago was a touch point as well, you know, learning about um, my identity and my my journey as a reporter in Chicago became more full bodied there. And that's why the book is set there. So I ask authors who come on my show this question all the time, but every time I and I feel that this may or may not be true with you, but. I feel like every project changes the author. How did writing your first book change you? Is there anything you learned about yourself in writing this book? I learned how I was much more silenced than I ever imagined. Uh, I knew that I was afraid to speak up in certain situations for fear of losing a job or being labeled something that I wasn't. I now realize how emotionally damaging that was in ways I did not fully reconcile. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're very much, and I applaud, you know, the new generation of of journalists of color, black women who are unapologetic. And I'm inspired, you know, by athletes like Simone Biles and and Naomi Osaka, who are able to speak up in ways that 
we did over coffee, but not in the newsroom, right? Of course, these things we were talking about calling it, can you believe that this in his newsroom? Or can, they put, they gave him this job and da, 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 da. Those were things we were talking about over phone and in our intimate circles that now are no longer able to hide in the shadows, much like me too, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think for me, I didn't realize, you know, it is one thing to recruit diversity. It's another to support it and allow us to thrive. And I think companies now are being called out on, don't just recruit the black anchor or the black reporter, set us up to thrive, to have successful shows, to reach the audience, not to become stars. The show is a success because the audience wants to see it and see your perspective and hear Bakari on what this, what he sees this as. That turns into the success versus we're going to keep putting this person on so much that they're going to succeed just because they're up there all the yeah. time. What do you want readers to get out of this book? You know, I want them to, as, as, as dark as the content may seem, because it is a thriller, I want them to laugh with her and, you know, she's dating and what is it like for a oh, reporter Lord. to, <laughs> yeah, you know, what is it like to have work be your, your love, but then suddenly you have a love interest and what is it like for the character when she leaves a story and she can't shake it, what's that friend circle like? What's that family circle like? Because often, again, people don't think about what happens to that reporter when they go home after leaving a crime scene. So we get inside of the world of Jordan Manning, but also she is solving the crime. And this is a Black female protagonist who's a hero that we don't often see. When you think about Da Vinci Code, when you think about all of these other books, who's solving the crime? Even back when I was a kid, 1901, there was Columbo, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or Quincy, you know, all of these characters who were the crime solvers of crimes that impacted everyone were not uh, diverse. So now you have a black female protagonist who is looking for justice. She doesn't wear a cape. She's not a superhero, but she has a particular set of skills, Liam Neeson, uh, to solve some of these cases. And she doesn't know what her calling is. Is it to be a reporter or is it to be an investigator? And she's living in these two worlds that sometimes collide. What I can appreciate about the work that you've done in this book, more so than almost anything else, is you bring attention to the disparity and coverage associated with Black women going missing. And you bring a realistic perspective to the subject matter because of your background in broadcast journalism. But why is this still a problem when we know why it's a problem and it's clear that there, that we need to co- cover other missing people just as much? And why are we still doing this when we don't cover black women missing the same as others? I think we all know why. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, this is not the Rubik's Cube. I've been trying to solve the Rubik's Cube since 1970. <laughs> we know why. Yeah. That's we know why. I mean, we've just, I mean, we're going through this whole thing again and it, and it breaks my And heart. I wrote this book. It does. And, you know, listen, I wrote this book a year and a half ago, never imagining that we would be having this conversation again, but yet knowing we would, right? And the part that I now digest and try to digest even more um, than just why don't we see the coverage um, balance out more. It's, it's the hurt on both sides. And, and I'm speaking about Gabby Petito's family specifically. Mm-hmm. Any parent, we are parents. If something, God forbid, were to happen to our children, 
we would say, I don't care what was happening in the rest of you make my baby the lead. In Correct. fact, I don't think you, I don't care the whole newscast. I want dedicated. So their desire to bring attention to their daughter is not the problem. That's what any parent should do. And on the other side, the desire for parents of children of color and advocates and voices like yours and mine to see that balance, that's not wrong either. But the pain makes these two collide. Correct. Right. And that's what's so hurtful. Their her parents have done nothing wrong to want her to that's be correct. the lead. Just like Jelani Day's mother has done nothing wrong for him or her to want him to be the lead as well. And many other names we don't know. So who's playing us? And is it purposeful? I don't believe so. I think it's systemic bias that keeps being passed down. And then there's a reset and then we fall back into it. I don't believe for one second that any of our colleagues who are not of color walk into secret rooms and say, we're not <laughs> going to leave with them. You know, nobody says that, but it's a trope and behavior that just keeps being passed down. You know, I covered now Natalie Hollowell. It's a heartbreaking story. You know, she's missing in Aruba and people wanted to know what I wanted to know. Heartbreaking, you know, and it just, it makes That was a young lady from Alabama, right? Uh, Alabama area, I think Atlanta and, and missing in Aruba. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it just, it ends up making us all victims of the system. And that is what pains me when I'm reading my book or when I report on it. When you think any parent would want their child to be the lead. And now we're like this about it. When will the book be available and where can people buy it? The book is available pre-order right now and you can start buying it in bookstores around the country. Uh, October 26th, you can also order anywhere you buy books, support small bookshops as well, bookstores. I still do that. A bookstore right around the corner from me that I love. But yes, wherever your books are sold, you can get it and pre-order it now. So before I let you go, I think I'd be committing podcast malpractice if I Ooh. didn't kind of circle back to something we were talking about earlier, which is we're now in the era of rampant disinformation and false equivalencies. Mm -hmm. And what I describe as gross underreporting about the threats to our democracy. I guess my question is, do you think we've learned anything over the past four years in how we cover politics? Of course we have and and haven't. I mean, none of this is new. <laughs> with, with yellow journalism, you know, Thomas Jefferson, the attacks against him, the salaciousness of the details and the usury of a black woman to attempt to bring him down that was enslaved by him. I, yeah. This is nothing new. And, you know, as, as William Barber, someone we both love, says, if you teach your children, this is the worst that we've seen. You are doing an injustice, uh, right? True disservice. Your father was a guest on my show. Look how long it took for the wrongs that he endured to be reconciled. You know, so this isn't new and we will learn from it and we'll fail from it again. That, that's, the, that's the reality of life. I, I had someone say to me, well, I wasn't born then. And I said, it didn't mean it didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, right. And so we start the clock at four years ago. That is a disservice. Because a lot of this started well before then. It's like when President Obama became the president, everyone said, we're post-racial. It's over. And you're going, what? Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. If we keep starting the clock at the four-year mark, it's, it's almost like 
you know, I, I'll equate it to sports again, you know, yards, you know, it take you have to run the field and get to the touchdown unless you throw an incredible throw, you know, but if, if we keep going back to, oh, well, 9-11 happened, it was Osama bin Laden, he's dead, so no more terror, which is what people thought. Let's get Osama bin Laden and it will never happen again. Yeah. And then we got ISIS and different groups we never heard of. And so if we say, oh, well, four years ago, that's over. So, you know, the Proud Boys will suddenly dissolve and white supremacy and all these issues and the threats against democracy will go away. Wait four more years. Keep keep thinking that the clock stops. So I do think in some ways, of course, the coverage improves, but I think any time there's money to be made in what is being reported, it will always be compromised. And so as long as someone can become a billionaire, billions errors over and over with some technology we didn't even know existed. And then the next person says, he made a billion. I can make a trillion, you know, or a news organization says, we're going to carry this speech that we know is full of lies. And then four years later say, Oh, we got to stop covering that speech. Well, the check's been cashed. (laughs) You never lie. I mean, (laughs) Oh, I mean, well, Anyway, Miss Hall, thank you so much for coming thank on the Bakari Sellers podcast. I encourage everybody to go out and get the book uh, and watch your show, which is, are, are you guys taping now? Are you guys in? Yeah, I'm backstage right now. Um, we're taping. We just had a phenomenal show yesterday, a whole hour with Issa Rae. Oh, she's so amazing. She, she's amazing. And what she's created with this groundbreaking show and bringing the stories of black millennial women to the screen. Um, we just had Deborah Messing on and Chloe uh, Bailey. On. I love Chloe People Bailey. Were, shout out. Shout out. To, did she teach yeah. you how to dance, Tamara? Are you dancing Listen, with Chloe? There, there's no part in my body that can dance like that. <laughs> she's a 23-year-old, beautiful. And she now goes by Chloe and she's just launched her solo career. Yeah. And our show's theme was introducing yourself. And so she's reintroducing herself to fans as a solo, independent, 23-year-old woman, and she's dope. So yes, we're having fun. We're behind the scenes. But before I leave, I just want to thank you for for everything you do. You come on on your shows, and we see you. You are such a credible and reliable voice in the spirit and history of other great um, journalists um, who did not always get their due. So it is so awesome to see you shouldering the load on big nights, not as a black voice, but as a credible voice. Oh, thank and you. that's very important. And my mother has a crush on you. And I'm well, sorry. I, that I love you. And creepy. that's my demo. That's my demo anyway. <laughs> I do well with that demo. <laughs> anyway, we love you, Tamara Hall. Have a blessed day and kiss the baby. Kiss thank Moses you. for me. All right. All bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye.